this morning we continue our ongoing study in the Gospel of Mark. I, it has been a blast for me. I hope I'm not the only one. I hope I haven't been putting the rest of you guys to sleep through this. But Mark has been, uh, has been one joy after another to me. And I'm particularly enjoying this section of Mark's teaching. Last week, we got to the first long passage of Jesus actually teaching about the kingdom, as opposed to just Mark giving us stories about Jesus and the kinds of things he was doing with his life. Uh, we've enjoyed those too. It's a certain, there's, there's, a different, uh, there's a different way of approaching those passages, a different way of getting insight into what Jesus was trying to communicate. But there's something unique about this section where Jesus, where we get an insight into the kinds of things Jesus was going around from community to community explaining. Not only that, we get some insight into the method that Jesus was using to do his teaching, the method called a parable. Jesus taught about the kingdom, a kingdom that he had come in to bring, a kingdom that he, that he promised came through him, and that it was here and it was now, and that it called for us to repent, to turn from all other allegiances, and to believe, to rest in the authority and the sovereignty of his kingdom. That, that's the message Jesus came preaching, but he came doing it in a very distinctive way. He taught what the kingdom was like through analogy. That's basically what these parables were. A parable was a story or an image taken from everyday life that Jesus could use to explain the nature of the kingdom by analogy. Last week, we looked at, uh, at a story that had everything to do with the process of growing things. A story whose key components were a sower who spreads seed, the seed itself, which represents the kingdom and the word of the gospel, and the soils, which could be conducive to growth or, or not. And in those soils, we saw a picture of what our hearts are like, sometimes stony, where the, the, the seed of the gospel doesn't sink in, sometimes distracted by the things of the world that choke out the growth of the seed, sometimes deep and full of, uh, of, of nutrients, a good and, 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 and uh, productive soil. This week, in the next section of parables in chapter 4, we get... Three more images that Jesus gives us for what the kingdom is like. If last week's parables were more trying to explain why people respond in different ways to the kingdom, this week's parables explain what that kingdom is, is supposed to look like. And each of them explains the nature of the kingdom in light of one overarching reality. And that is that the kingdom doesn't look anything like most people were expecting. There was a lot of talk in the days when Jesus walked the earth, about the kingdom of God. Plenty of promises given through prophets uh, ages ago. And there, were, there was a lot of, of competing uh, talk about what that kingdom was going to look like. Some groups thought that kingdom would come through a violent revolution, that they would establish themselves as the new and holy rulers over the kingdom of God. Others, like the Pharisees, thought that the kingdom would come about through greater obedience to a set of standards that they had established. There were, there were plenty of ways that the kingdom was expected, all of them very visible and unmistakable. And yet here comes Jesus, a normal guy with a normal family, normal job as a carpenter, living in a very normal place like Nazareth, and he's claiming to have brought the kingdom in himself. Sure, he's got lots of powers, but even those powers get explained away by, by his own family as something that looks more like insanity than the kingdom of God. It's that backdrop 
of, of the unexpected nature of the kingdom as it's developing now. That, that's the backdrop for, uh, for, for, the, for the parables that Jesus, uh, that Jesus teaches in and Mark gives us this morning. He gives us three images. He says that the kingdom is like a lamp that illuminates and separates light from darkness. The kingdom is like a growing seed that, when planted, grows without the uh, control, outside of the control of the one who planted it. And that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, but in the plant that it yields, the largest. These are Jesus' three images. We're going to take them one at a time today. Look at what the kingdom is like, given each of these three images, and then take a step back and say, if the kingdom is like this, what does that mean for us and how we respond to the kingdom and its presence here and now through Jesus? So what is the kingdom like? Three images. How do we respond to the kingdom that is like this? That's where we're headed today. First, though, why don't we read the passage together? Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some Bibles that are at the end of each row here at the center. If you just flag somebody down, they'll be happy to pass one to you. And the passage we're going to read today from Mark chapter 4 is found on page number 30 in the little Bibles that we have at the end of each row. Uh, if, once you've found it, would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word as we read together? We're going to read from Mark chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 21. Mark chapter 4, verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, At once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parables shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not even speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, Jesus' first analogy is to a lamp. He tells us the kingdom is like a lamp. Lamps would have been the primary means of bringing light into a room in those days. And... It would have been an image that would have been very familiar to the people Jesus was speaking with. They would have known the answer to his rhetorical question, that only a fool would, take, would light a lamp and then cover it up. What good could possibly come out of a lamp that can't give light to the room? That's the point of his analogy. 
the really interesting thing here, the, the key to knowing that this is the kingdom that he's talking about is the way that this verse is phrased. It probably doesn't come out really well in the translation that you've got. In the one that we just read, it, it, it's, it's hidden a little bit. He says, literally, that the lamp comes into the room as if the lamp itself has agency, has the ability to bring itself into the room. Our, our translations often smooth that over and say the lamp was brought into a room, but this is the kingdom that he's talking about. It comes. It comes with authority and power. The gist of the analogy is that the kingdom, like a lamp, comes in order to be set out, to shed light, to be revealed. The kingdom is here to be revealed. Now, that may seem like an obvious point to us. Why else would it come, right? But it wouldn't have been obvious then. Remember, Jesus has already given several instructions to people who knew who he was to keep quiet about it. Jesus has been hiding his identity from some. And remember, the Jesus and the kingdom that he is claiming to have brought doesn't look anything like what most people would have expected. This is a normal guy in a normal job, in a normal city, doing normal things up until this point. It's hidden because of him. His analogy tells us that it won't always be that way. That's the gist of it. Now, the really curious part is how he supports that analogy. If you look back at the, at the verses, at verse 22 in particular, so his rhetorical question makes his point. Nobody brings a lamp in to hide it. It's here to give light. But then he says the reason this is true for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. His argument is that nothing gets hidden except or for the purpose of being revealed, as if the hiddenness is the means by which something comes to light or gets revealed. That's very counterintuitive, but it seems clearly that's what he's saying. So what could he mean? Jesus doesn't go into detail. He doesn't give us much help. And he leaves us to figure it out, like Mark's readers, from what we know about the nature of the kingdom now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, from what we know about Christianity from things like Mark, but also from the writings of Paul. We're, we're to bring in what we know about the whole of Christianity to interpret this cryptic reference. Nothing is hidden except to be revealed. It is hidden, in other words, in order to be revealed. It seems like for Mark's readers and, and for us, knowing the end of the story from the beginning, we know that the kingdom is hidden because the kingdom comes in Jesus, someone who's unexpected, lives a life that seems normal, and ultimately lives a life that ends in the shameful death on a cross. So far, what we've seen looks like foolishness, like weakness, a kingdom that's veiled in human form, claiming divine power, but located in a human being. Especially seems a reference to the fool foolishness of a kingdom that's established through, through death. The success of the kingdom that's described so far, a kingdom that aims at creating a new people, a new and fulfilled relationship between God and those that he created. That's the goal of the kingdom. The success of that kind of kingdom hinges upon an event 
that seems a polar opposite to the powerful visions of empire that words like kingdom teach us to expect. But this foolishness, this hiddenness of real power is the whole means by which the kingdom comes about. You don't get the kingdom that Jesus has been describing without the shameful death that is waiting for him at the end of this book. You don't get what is going to be revealed without first the hiddenness that is part and parcel to Jesus' life and ministry and ultimately his death. The kingdom is hidden in Jesus as the only means by which it can ever be revealed. I think that's the way we have to understand Jesus' argument in this parable. It is a lamp. It is coming to illuminate and to separate light from darkness. But it is hidden in order to accomplish that purpose. It is hidden now only for a time so that one day it can be revealed. That's the importance of Jesus' claim at the end of this paragraph where he warns against misjudging how significant the kingdom is even though hidden in its present form. Jesus says, pay attention. With the measure you use, how you assess this kingdom, you will be assessed. The measure you use in assessing the value of the things Jesus is saying is going to be applied to you later when the kingdom is fully revealed. The stakes are high, in other words. Don't miss the fact that the hiddenness is a means to its being revealed. That's his point in this parable. The kingdom is like a lamp. It is coming to reveal. It is going to separate light from darkness. Don't miss it. The kingdom is also like a growing seed, we're told. Verses 26 through 29. If, if, if part of the reason for the hiddenness of the kingdom is that it's necessary for Jesus to become human, to veil his divine power and glory and go to the cross for the kingdom to succeed at all. Another reason that it's hidden is that by confounding what humans expect this kingdom to look like, God alone gets the glory. Through doing it in unexpected ways, it highlights the fact that God is the only one who could make this thing happen. He's the only one who could establish the kind of kingdom he's come here to establish. That's the point of Jesus' next parable, this analogy to a seed that grows. So Jesus is drawing an analogy familiar to a farmer who goes out with a bag of seed and sows the seed. Now he picks the right time. He tills up the ground and tries to get it ready to receive this seed, but ultimately he just sows it and the seed grows. There are things you can do to cultivate the soil and nurture the seed. You can water it. You can remove the weeds. And, and Jesus' analogy by leaving out details like that isn't meant to question the fact that the farmer has a role. His point is simply that compared to all the things that go into a seed's growth, that farmer's role may as well be nothing other than sowing that seed. Compared to the complex process of germination where the seed actually interacts with the nutrients that are in the ground and begins to grow and to thrive, the farmer may as well do nothing. He certainly can't make the seed do that. Since, since that time, scientists today know way more about seed germination and growth than Jesus did. But even today, scientists can't create a seed that is going to grow in the way uh, that, that these normal seeds do. The, con the process, though more understood, is still incredibly complex and beyond human control. That's Jesus' point. All the things that the farmer can do compared to what has to happen for it to work, may as well be nothing but going to sleep and waking up again. That's the phrase Jesus uses to summarize what the farmer is actually doing. He sows the seed, he goes to sleep, he wakes up again, and it's growing. 
the point is, the kingdom is coming, and it's coming for sure, like a lamp, to reveal, because the one who's bringing it in is God. And because God brings in the kingdom, nothing can keep it from coming. Now, we're not an agricultural society, so perhaps some of his image is lost on us a little bit. Uh, So I spent some time trying to think of a good analogy to Jesus' analogy that might could help us understand just how long a shot it is that any human effort is going to bring this thing about. What I thought of was that maybe it's a lot like the relationship between our physical actions to go to a website on the Internet and what it takes to get that website and all of its information there and displayed for us. So, for instance, say you type in NewYorkTimes.com or Facebook or wherever you go regularly. You type that into the web address, you hit return, and it appears. You could say, I guess in a sense, you created that, right? Your actions brought that about, and there it is. But come on. We all know that it is infinitely more complex than typing it into an address bar and hitting return. There are, there's the matter of, the programming of the site, all the weird code that goes into making it possible to doing what the programmer wants it to do. There's the research and the composition of the articles that go onto the site, the content that you're going to read. There's the, uh, the hardware that's involved, even on your own computer, that, that can process these digital images and put it up there. The screen technology is beyond your control. There's the, the matter of the wiring that takes the digital information and brings it to your house and somehow connects it to a, a router that sends it wirelessly to some port on your computer. And then there's the matter of the Internet itself, which to me is a great mystery. Thank you, Al Gore, right? All of this goes into getting that screen to display the information that you want it. Yeah, sure, you created it. You typed in the website and you hit return. But come on, you didn't create it. It's way more complex than that. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying about the way that seeds grow. Yes, you sowed it, maybe even watered it, pulled some weeds up. But the relationship between those actions and what actually gets produced, they may as well just be going to sleep and waking up again. God brings the growth. Only only God brings the growth. And so it is with the kingdom of God. From our perspective, It's not that our actions are insignificant, but they're the means that God has chosen to bring about his kingdom. We're going to say some more about that in a moment. But compared to what must happen for the kingdom to succeed, our actions are negligible compared to God's sovereignty. It's his sovereign control that makes absolutely certain the kingdom is coming and nothing can stop it. Jesus' notion of the kingdom's coming was radically different from those others at his, in his time that were waiting on the kingdom. The zealots, a very popular group of radicals, thought that the kingdom was coming because they were going to be able to overpower the Roman oppression. There's a little bit of zealotry, for instance, in Peter when he takes out the sword to defend Jesus before he goes to the cross and cuts off the ear of the slave. That's a zealotry. That, 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 that's what the zealots would say it, 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 it was going to take for the kingdom to come in. The Pharisees we've already seen, they had a whole bunch of standards they'd created over and above the standards laid down in the law, thinking that if we could just get people to be faithful, if we could create an environment that is pleasing to God, the kingdom will come, the oppressors will be thrown off, and we'll have the things that the prophets have promised. 
both of these very different methods, but very centered on what humans could do to bring about the kingdom. That's what was expected. Jesus explains to them that the kingdom he's brought, the kingdom that as it exists now doesn't square with their expectations, he's saying it never was intended to square with their expectations. It was always intended to begin in this way and to certainly come about, to come to completion because God is the one who's bringing it to completion. Jesus' description of the kingdom is just as jarring with some uh, more recent expectations of what the kingdom would look like. I, I think about roughly 100 years ago, it was very popular, especially in this country, to believe that the kingdom of God was closer than it had ever been. They looked around at how much science had, had taught us. They looked around at how much industry was, was succeeding in the country and creating all these new jobs. There seemed to be nothing that wasn't doable. And so there was this great hope that we were seeing the beginning of the kingdom of God and that if we could just eradicate poverty, if we could somehow bring an end to war, if we could somehow get the relationships between the, the employers and the workers more, more in harmony with each other, we could create this, this society that would be the kingdom that was promised. That w- there was more hope for that 100 years ago than there had been at any point previous to that. And then what happens? World War I happens. Carnage on an untold scale. The Great Depression hits. Problems in that area of the perfect society of, of work and employer relations it, it hit directly at, at those nerves. World War II happens and confirms everything that had happened before and, and, and shapes how people see the world as a place full of pain and suffering and sorrow. They had hung so much of their hope on what they could do to produce a society that would be the kingdom of God that they set themselves up for this cataclysmic failure and for disillusionment with Christianity itself. I'm not exactly sure what the parallel would be for us today, what it is we're doing now that we think is going to bring in this perfect, holy, happy society. But we should beware, lest we fall into the same trap of thinking that something we're doing now is going to produce what Jesus tells us only only God can produce. The kingdom is like a lamp. It's coming, for sure, in order to reveal The kingdom is also like a growing seed in that it grows because God gives the growth and therefore it is going to grow. The kingdom is also like a mustard seed. Verses 30 through 34, Jesus sets up this final analogy. Here, the point is a contrast. The contrast between how the kingdom looks at the beginning and how the kingdom will look at the end. The mustard seed, Jesus tells us, hyperbolically, is, is the smallest of the seeds. And he's not trying to say scientifically, this is the smallest of all seeds in the world. It was used in their literature, in the imagery of the time, as something really, really, really small. The mustard seed is tiny. But when you plant it and it grows, it becomes the largest plant in the field. It becomes a bush so big that birds can actually fly and nest there. They can enjoy shade and protection there. The beginning, in other words, doesn't match up with the end. This is what the kingdom of God is like. If you look at Jesus, you look at the, if, if you were to look around at that time and see the, the condition that, that their society was in, you would not say that the kingdom promised by the prophets was here. Jesus 
is preparing people for that reality by saying what you see now is not what will be. The small beginnings intended by God are not indicative of what's coming. If this is how God chose to introduce his kingdom, I I think it should come as no surprise to us, given how he's typically chosen to work. He's always used the weak things of the world to shame the strong, in Paul's phrase. He's, He's always used the least expected to highlight that it's his power that's at work. Think about the history of, uh, of the Bible, it's the storyline of, of the gospel and God's work to redeem humanity. Think about the fact that he decided to found his people through whom salvation would come with Abraham. He chose to found a people, a lineage, through an old, childless polytheist with no home. Consider that he chose to work out salvation through Israel a homeless and small and nomadic people, consistently strong-willed and disobedient. Consider that he chose for Israel's greatest king a small shepherd boy who was an odd choice even among his own family. The prophet even would have chosen any of David's brothers ahead of David based on appearances. And now the kingdom is come as promised but not in obvious power, not in the overthrow of the Roman government, but in a normal-looking human with a family and a history and a job as a carpenter. He's got unusual power, but even that power gets explained away, as we've said. And we'll learn later on, this is a kingdom established in part by the shame and the apparent defeat of the cross. So it's no wonder that Paul would later call the gospel foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He describes his gospel, the thing he came, Paul, came to preach and and traveled the world preaching as nothing less than foolishness. And he claims that it is foolish so that no one can boast. God chose to work in small beginnings in a kingdom whose message appeared foolish compared to its setting, compared to, to what was going on around it. So that at the end, when the mustard seed becomes the mustard tree, God alone gets glory. It won't be the glory of those warriors who fought successfully in the revolution. It won't be the intellectual glory that goes to those smart enough to figure out that this is the best system on offer and that God is in it. It's foolishness so that in trusting it and finding it to be true, only God gets the glory and there is no reason for us to boast. That's Paul's message in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and and that's the point of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed. So are we to understand this small phase of the kingdom, this, this small beginnings, the mustard seed, just as the time when Jesus was on earth and the, the full-grown bush phase of the kingdom to, to be after his death and resurrection and, after, and the growth of the church? It's a hard question to answer. Jesus doesn't tell us when the mustard seed becomes the mustard tree. But I think that this parable is included by Mark in his story precisely because it continues to have relevance to the people who Mark was writing for and therefore continues to have relevance for us because we don't see the kingdom fully as it will be. It seems like he was recording these stories because he knew they would encourage 
his readers and remind them that even if the kingdom's presence looked small now, it wasn't all that it was going to be. And that these small beginnings were not an accident, but they were actually intentional. It seems like, in other words, the parables are advice for living in, in what has come to be called the already and not yet phase of the kingdom. The already but not yet phase of the kingdom. The kingdom is already here in the sense that Jesus has come, right? He has spoken to us. God in flesh has walked among us and left for us the power of his spirit to guide us and empower us as we live as those redeemed in his kingdom. The kingdom is already here in that sense. It's already here in the sense that he has died and he is now alive again. He is what Paul calls the first fruits from the dead, a symbol of what's going to happen for us. So we have a pledge of what's to come that, that others before didn't have. The kingdom is already here in the sense that the church is a colony of the kingdom here in hostile territory in the world. The church is a symbol or a taste of what the full kingdom will be like. And the church has continued to grow for thousands of years and spread across the globe. So it's already here in some sense. But boy, the kingdom is not yet. It's not yet in the sense that evil is still present. In the sense that sin is still powerful in our lives. That we still face death at the end of our lives. That we endure pain and sorrow and the brokenness of relationships and broken bodies and, and broken even societies. The kingdom is not yet in the sense that not all acknowledge the reality of God's kingdom. We're told that one day every knee will bow before, before Jesus and, and acknowledge him as Lord, and that day is not here yet. The kingdom of God, not only is it not acknowledged, it's, it's even considered to be weak and foolish. The kingdom is not yet in the sense that faith hasn't turned to sight. This is our reality. And it's what Jesus taught us to expect through these parables. The sum of the parables, God is establishing his kingdom, but not how you'd expect. God is establishing his kingdom, but not how you'd expect. If that's the sum of Jesus' three images, that leaves us to ask, what are we to do? How do we respond to a kingdom that's like this? We could go in a lot of different directions here. For the sake of time, I want to limit us to three. Three observations for living in the kingdom that is like the images Jesus has described. First, we wait in faith no matter how the kingdom prospects appear to us. Mark's first readers needed to hear that the kingdom's security lay with God and that it wouldn't appear strong at first because they were facing growing persecution. Sometimes they even faced death for their faith. So they needed to know that what they were experiencing was not all that there was. It was as a mustard seed to a mustard tree. Under the best of circumstances, followers of Jesus then were written off as a ragtag band of misfits and outcasts, the poor, the most vulnerable, needy of society. They didn't have the, the, the look of the powerful Roman Empire that they were embedded in. That looked like a kingdom. A rule over hundreds of miles, uh, a road system that was policed by, by thousands of troops, a currency system that was known throughout that entire portion of the ancient world. That looked like a kingdom, well-oiled machine. This was a message that resonated most with those who knew their need for what Jesus offered. And again, the group didn't appear, as you'd expect, a global kingdom to appear. 
Except today, some things are different. The church is huge and spread over the entire globe. But even now, even today, there are always going to be things about Christianity that don't seem to jive with our experience. And maybe for you, it's that the message of the kingdom seems like foolishness at times. It did to many people then. It has to many people ever since. You need to hear Jesus explain that this appearance is intentional. That it's hidden. The kingdom is hidden. Even appears foolish. But it does so because that's what's necessary if it's to be fully revealed. Maybe it seems hard to accept because of the circumstances in your life. Maybe, maybe the kingdom of peace with God, a promise of triumph over, over evil, an absence of suffering and death seem terribly abstract to you, if not unbelievable, because your sin, sin seems so strong and you don't enjoy a sense of peace with God and you're, you're suffering in your body or in the, in the bodies of those who you love. Christianity, though, is not a promise that these things aren't going to happen to you. Christianity is a system that's built on the fact that they will and that because of them you need Jesus. It's, it's built on the promise that this brokenness is going to be healed in time. It's a promise that God who's bringing in this kingdom intends these things for your good. If your experience indicates that this kingdom is a long shot, something of a pipe dream, then this, this parable this collection of teachings is meant to call you back and to remind you that we are called now to wait in faith just like Abraham did who died not having seen the promise fulfilled we are called to live in a faith that may not be confirmed fully before we die we are called to wait on a kingdom that's already but very much not yet and Jesus taught us to expect nothing less second we sow the seed of the kingdom. We proclaim its coming in Jesus in confidence because it's God's kingdom and God is going to give the growth. So think about who you've got in your life that, that doesn't know Jesus. We've all got people like that. We'd like to see them come to peace with God, to enjoy the benefits of the promises that are ours in the gospel. Maybe you are afraid, though, to speak to someone because you don't know that you can carry it off. You don't know that you've got the answers they're looking for or that you're going to be able to, to, to say things in just the right way that it convinces them that Jesus is worth staking their life on. Maybe that's you. The promise, though, that we get in how the kingdom grows through and only through the agency of God giving the seed growth, that is, that is meant as a pledge for you to know that you don't need to be Billy Graham in order to tell people about this gospel and the kingdom that is here and now in Jesus. God is going to give the growth. It's not up to you to be winsome. Yes, you do have to get the gospel right. There is a certain amount of information you need to communicate, but you don't have to do it in a well-oiled manner that leaves no mistaking, that, 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 that you have to commit to the gospel, that anything else would seem foolish. That's what we all want. That's how we envision ourselves as we, as we think about sharing with our friends and families. We don't have to be that. Don't let that vision freeze you where you're afraid to, to say anything at all. On the other hand, maybe, maybe you've got a different problem. Maybe you've, you have been speaking about Jesus with this person in your life, a family member or a longtime friend, someone who just isn't receptive at all. 
Maybe the gospel seems foolish to them. Maybe they're just hostile to it because of some experience they've had in the past. Who, who knows what the reason may be. But the way that the kingdom grows, as Jesus has described it here, is meant to give you confidence to continue sharing with them because ultimately, though you may feel like you're bumping into a brick wall now, the beginning does not look like the end. God gives the growth. There's no heart that he can't melt, and you don't know what might come from your resilience with this person. And we told last week that some soils do remain rocky. This is not a promise that if you keep it up, the person in your life is going to repent and believe in Jesus. But it's a promise that no matter how hard they seem now, God is not beyond the ability to soften them and bring, bring growth to the gospel in their heart. So sow the seed in confidence and trust in the, in, in the ability of God. Finally, uh, let, me, let me give you an illustration of, of, this, of this particular point. I, I, about four or five years ago, I traveled some with a friend who works in Central Asia, in a region of the world that is, that is dominated mostly by, uh, by eight generations and generations, centuries of Islamic influence. Um, he works over a network of NGOs in the area uh, run by, by Christians who live there doing good gospel-centered work, helping people find jobs and, 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 and ministering to those who have needs, and also living as Christians, hoping that people will come to know Christ through their presence there. And yet, they're living in this place where less than one-tenth of one percent of people in this region know Jesus. They're living in a place that is so dominated by competing impulses that it seems almost impossible to me that anyone would ever convert. Think about centuries of, of the dominance of a single religion, of the power of family ties and tradition. Think about the, the fact that, that conversion can cost you your family if not your life in this part of the world. Can think about all the things that, that, that weigh against someone coming to know Jesus in that part of the world. And then imagine, imagine our own state here. The fact that we could convert with maybe some loss of prestige or, or family. We could convert to Islam here, but it wouldn't cost us anything professionally. It wouldn't cost us our life, that's for sure. And think about what a long shot it is in your mind that you would ever Someone would come from another country and try to convince you to, to convert to Islam and that you would actually do it? Can you imagine that happening to you? You probably can't. So multiply that long shot and, and place it in a place like Afghanistan, and it seems just downright impossible. And so I asked him, how in the world do you give your lives to living here looking for people to, to convert to Christianity? How are you able to keep that kind of resilience against those odds considered from a human perspective? And he said, the, the only way that it's possible is that we believe that conversion comes through a work of God alone. That ultimately, we couldn't have done anything anyway. So the odds don't matter at all. Ultimately, God gives the growth, so we're just here, living among them, explaining when we can, and looking for God to do something miraculous. That's, that's the kind of confidence that you can have even in your own interactions with your neighbors and your family or your friends at work. Keep sowing the seed in confidence because God gives the growth. And, and finally, third, if the kingdom is like this, it means that we pray. We pray. Prayer fundamentally shows that we depend on God. Prayer is ordained by God to get things done 
because prayer is the way that we show we trust in him rather than in our own resources. Prayer is the voice of faith that expresses a willingness to rest in his will, come what may, with the confidence that we're secure in him. What we want to see happen in our church, in in our neighborhoods, among our friends and family, what we want to see happen is spiritual renewal. And we know, we're told in the gospel, that spiritual renewal only comes through the powerful action of God on a person's heart. If these are the things we want to see happen, then the only thing we can do is pray. Prayer is at root an expression of our faith that God can do something we can't and that we're relying on Him to do it. And it is so important because prayer, more than anything else we can do, forces us to stare our inadequacy in the face. It forces us to look through it, to look beyond it, to look because of our inadequacy to the resources that are ours in Christ Jesus. Prayer is what enthrones God in our lives because it is us trusting not just what we, Him to do not just what we want, but what's best for us and what we can't do for ourselves. If the kingdom is like this, we are left to pray. Let's do that right now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 